Once again this week, I have been immersed in fear and dread for people that I love. And in particular, a fear for friends and family and neighbors who are living while black in the United States of America. Because once again, our nation has plunged into shock and disbelief and rage and grief. George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed by a white, now former Minneapolis police officer named Derek Chauvin. During Chauvin's arrest of Floyd over an alleged counterfeit $20 bill, while George Floyd was handcuffed on the ground, Chauvin placed much of the weight of his body on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. Despite Floyd's gasps that he couldn't breathe, his calling for his mama, and the pleas of those gathered there. For nearly nine agonizing minutes, an officer of the peace slowly but surely suffocated George Floyd. And the days that have followed have unleashed a torrent of pain and anguish and rage. Because this isn't simply about the murder of one man. This follows the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and a multitude of black folks in a legacy of legitimized terror that has stretched for over 400 years. And so my fear this week has been for the people I love, that they too will find themselves in a certain place at some time, barbecuing or bird watching, and the pernicious and subliminal forces of racism will crush them. And my fear this week is that nothing new will come of this story. That we will yell past each other and that nothing will fundamentally change. And my fear this week is that at the end of all this pain and suffering, we will come to an even greater chasm. And the fractures of this nation will deepen and widen and that there is nothing to stop us from falling apart. This is what I fear. And every year on Pentecost, we hear a different portion of John's Gospel in which Jesus talks about the Spirit 
the advocate, the comforter, the one who will be with those who trust in God. And this time when I heard this passage, which is told very early in the Gospel of John, I was reminded that the disciples receive this promise of the Spirit pouring out from their hearts before the hurt has come, way before they knew they would need it. Jesus tells his beloved friends, knowing what would be ahead of them, betrayal, persecution, suffering, and even death. And he tells them that through the presence of the one who will walk alongside them, their hearts, our hearts, will be the source of the living waters for the healing of the world. They will not be left alone. And while they may not have understood it at the time, it was a promise that they would not forget. Dorothy Day was eight years old in April of 1906 when the earth shook the Bay Area and fire raged across San Francisco. She and her family lived right here in Oakland. At the time, she was an Episcopalian, baptized in high school. And the experience of watching as people cared for each other in a time of great disaster was transformative for her. In her autobiography, Day writes, While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. It was as though they were united in Christian solidarity. It makes one think of how people could, if they would, care for each other in times of stress, unjudgingly, in pity and love. This feeling, this notion, this reality of true and radical community, perhaps you've felt it. Perhaps at a time when things were falling apart, this would frame Dorothy Day's life's work, which was forming communities of radical love and service in the midst of the disaster of poverty. But her experience as an eight-year-old in Oakland crystallized a question that would accompany her the rest of her life. She saw strangers pitch tents and offer clothes and share meals, and she wondered, why can't we live the way we do during disaster when it's not? Because even as things fall apart, there is a drive to come together, but often it is not sustained. We move on from the intensity, forgetting the solidarity that we have experienced. 
And I fear this will be true for us as well. Once the fires have been extinguished and the riots have come to an end, that we will forget. But friends, when the emergency of this moment passes, we cannot pretend as if we are still not in a disaster. The disaster of centuries of pervasive and systemic racism that has particularly brutalized black bodies and has distorted and deformed everyone who has someone somehow encountered this experiment we call America. This is what it is to be part of America, a disaster of our own making. And it is one we must take our part to redeem. In the past couple of weeks, I've spent more time with the work of Rebecca Solnit. She's the author and activist who held up the metaphor of the chrysalis as to where we are right now. In an on-being interview with Krista Tippett that was rebroadcast in March, Solnit talks about the choice we often face in disaster. That even in the midst of the world falling apart around us, we can choose to fall together. But it is not as always easy to see this as a possibility, especially when it is so clear what is falling apart. There's a temptation in times like these to make sure that someone else falls first. Or to avoid the suffering of those around us as long as we can stay safe. But when we do that, still all of us eventually fall. And we have the capacity to make the choice in that moment. The choice to acknowledge that our fate, our salvation, is bound up one with each other. For falling apart is not inevitable, as witnessed by the dozens and dozens of black and white and brown folks who have been showing up after the fires in Minneapolis and after the riots in Oakland and in cities around this country. People have been showing up to fall together to clean up and to repair the damage. But to do this, we have to trust the promise that God's Spirit flowing like living water from our hearts will be everything we need to fall together. You might have heard me invoke before Brene Brown's definition of courage. Derived from the old French of cœur or courage, her understanding is that courage is shown when we act from a full heart. 
God knows that we will need courage to fall together. For falling together will mean listening, not for opportunities to make our own arguments or to defend ourselves from uncomfortable truth, but in a willingness to come close enough to listen, to really listen to the stories of pain and be changed by them. For some of us, this will mean a renewal of effort and attention. For some of us, this will be a beginning, a new way of being in the world. And for some of us, well, some in this congregation have been waiting a long time for justice to be fulfilled. But no matter where you find yourself today, I cannot be clear enough about this. As Christians, we will need to devote ourselves in the days and the weeks and the months ahead to the spiritual and structural reformation and redemption of this nation. A healing of the breach. Friends, on this day, when we remember the flowing of the Spirit upon those gathered in Jerusalem, I ask for us to open our hearts to the Spirit of truth and life. And to ask for the courage, the heart, to recreate our country, to recreate our cities, to recreate our lives, to recreate ourselves. For even as things are falling apart around us, we, you and I, with the Spirit, must have the heart to fall together.